0: Morning everyone. Morning. So good to be here again. My name is Father Matthew. It's been a minute since I was here. I think it was July actually. And since since last time I was here, my life has changed a little bit because I, I got a job that has me traveling a lot. Does, does anyone here travel for work? Like anyone? Okay, so sorry all of you. <laughs> I, um, <clears throat> so I recently started this job where I'm, I, my main market is Seattle. So that's a, that's a long flight in case five and a half hours. Um, also though I've been in all, all sorts of places. Austin, Denver, Philly, New York. It was great for like three trips. And then I was like, oh no, this isn't great. But anyway, the reason I, I say that is because one of the things that it's done is it's opened my eyes to a thing that I was formerly unaware of. I mean, I kind of knew a little bit about it, but I had no idea the depth and the sophistication of it. And that is the caste system that is behind all air travel. <laughs> so <clears throat> what... Most people who spend their life in suitcases uh, are anxious for is something that is just simply known as, and probably some of you know this, status. Status is everything. Now, we're in a Delta hub, which means that what MQMs and MQDs you have, that is medall- medallion-qualifying miles and dollars you have, says everything about your worth and value as a human being and the sort of life that you can enjoy or, or be left, left out of. Now, if you um, are a traveling person, so those of you who raised your hands, you have undoubtedly heard in the last couple of weeks that Delta dropped a bombshell on their SkyMile members two weeks ago, and they basically turned the whole program upside down and said, all of you who have enjoyed medallion status, it's going to be so much harder for you next year to get it. And with that, your access to the luxurious you know, Sky Club with its free food and you know the different the upgrades and all that stuff. And, and friends, let me tell you, <laughs> the internet is on fire over this. If you, know, if you know where to look, I would stay far away from the Delta subreddit unless you want to go into a black hole and never return. Um, so here's why, here's why I say all that. Um, so we have, as human beings, an endless capacity to move the, the field goalposts on what we think we, we are owed. Um, Years ago, I saw um, the once beloved, now we don't really know how to think about him, comedian Louis C.K. Louis he was on Conan, and he was talking about this. He says, we live in a time in which we have more, everything is amazing, and yet no one is happy. Everyone feels like they're entitled to everything, um, and we no longer can appreciate just how amazing the world is that you and I are, are living in. And so... Uh, he gave this example, but it totally applies to my life, so I'm going to steal it. So this last week, I'm flying to Denver, and I like to use the time on the plane to get work done because it's a lot of time on the plane. And if you are a SkyMiles member, on Den- this is like an education course for those of you who one day may have this job. So if you, if you are a SkyMiles member, which is free by the way, you get, Delta loves to call it, fast free Wi-Fi. And you know what? A lot of times it doesn't work, that's just the truth of it. It doesn't work a lot of times, but sometimes it does, and the fact that they promise it to you and say this is your benefit as a Sky Miles member makes you entitled to it, of course. And so I'm flying out to Denver, and I'm trying to get work done, I'm trying to catch up on Slack and all that stuff, and it turns out that this was one of those flights where the Wi-Fi is out. And do you know how I felt about it? I was, I was angry, I was angry. I was, I, you know, if you could have been inside my mind, you would have heard me say, ugh, fine, I'll just watch one of these 80 high-def movies on the personal seat monitor in front of me. Do you remember when they used to roll down the screen and we all had to watch the same thing with those really uncomfortable rubber things in our ears? That's what we, that was, kids, that's what it was like. And, but now, I mean, we all get to choose whatever we want, and it doesn't matter. We don't even think about the fact that we're sitting in a chair seven miles above the surface of the earth, traveling across the continent faster than at any time in human history. That is uh, taken for granted. What I want is my, uh, what Delta owes me, and they have stolen from me now because of their negligence. That is uh, fast free Wi-Fi. Okay, so all, that brings us uh, to today's, today's text. And actually, something that appears again and again in in our our readings this morning, which which is that it's just so easy to complain. Uh, our text begins from Exodus, and you know we've been working through the Old Testament for all of ordinary time. It's been really sweet and 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 we we also uh, can see that that our text today begins with these with these words, and the whole congregation complained against Moses. And Aaron. Now, I like the ESV translation better. They say the whole uh, congregation grumbled. You know, grumbling is what the sound sounds like when the person next to you, their Wi-Fi isn't working on the airplane. That's what it sounds like. I can't believe this. And the whole congregation is grumbling against Moses. Now, what is their complaint? I think it's fair to hear them out and not just like say, come on, guys, deal with it. Um, why Why are they complaining about? And they are upset because they're starving to death and that seems like a fair thing to be upset about and they say it's not you know we were we had food and then moses made us leave the food and he brought us out here to a place where there's no food and it's his fault now on the surface this is a completely legitimate thing to be upset about right all of us would be upset In a similar situation and yet what we need to do and what the text is asking us to do and what what i think the rest of the readings are asking us to do is to take a step back from the immediacy of what they're dealing with and ask where are we and mother janet told us where we are last week we are on the other side of one of the most sensational celebrated and remarkable miracles in the whole bible in fact other than the resurrection of jesus no other miracle is more referenced in the bible than the crossing of the red sea in which God turned what was a wall into an instrument of mercy and parted the waters and let the Israelites, millions of freed slaves, cross on dry ground and then in the same stroke turned that instrument of mercy into an instrument of judgment and drowned their enemies behind them, Pharaoh and his army. And they get to the other side of the Red Sea and for a couple days they're really happy about it. Because, you know, that's about as long as like joy can last for any of us. It's like, okay, this is great. Three days of singing. And then they go out. So that's, that's sort of the, where are we? We're on the other side of the Red Sea. We're in a place we should not be, but God is merciful and kind. He's brought us out of Egypt. We read earlier in Psalm 105, he's brought us out with all of the loot of one of the greatest and most wealthy empires in the world. And now we have all this bounty and we're free and our enemies are drowned and we don't have to be afraid of them anymore and they go a little bit into the wilderness and they come to a brook, a spring of water. We don't we didn't read about this, but it's called Mara because the water is bitter. So just think of like sulfur water, you know. And they're like this is gross. It smells like farts and and so God <laughs> says, "Well, take this piece of wood, Moses, throw it into the the water and it will become sweet. Become sweet water." Suddenly, they're not thirsty anymore. They have everything they need. That is the end of chapter 15, and we begin chapter 16, and the very first thing is, and the whole congregation complained against Moses yet again. It's so easy to complain. It's so easy to, 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 to give energy and life and fuel to that grumbling spirit within us. It's so easy to see what I don't have rather than what I do have, to see where I'm not rather than where I am it's something that all of us can understand and agree with i think that complaining is something that comes very natural to us now i want to be really careful when i talk about this because if you know me which some of you know me better than others you know that it's very important to me for uh, for for uh, it's very important to me that you feel the freedom in your walk with the lord to complain to god it's very important that you are free to be honest with what is already active in your heart. God's not on the outside of it. He already knows. So rather than acting like everything's fine and just swallowing whatever comes at us, like actually choosing to voice the things that, God, that we're frustrated with or disappointed about or confused about is actually, I believe, part of what it means to be one of God's children. And I think if you want any evidence of that, just read the Psalms. Or look at the prayers of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross himself. Look at the way that Jesus was able to speak to his Father and cry out from the cross, Why have you forsaken me? It's because we are invited to bring our frustration and disappointment and confusion to God. And God is not going to be put off by it. And he's not going to have his feelings hurt by it. And he's able to handle it. He can take it. So I want want to say that. And yet... And yet, I think what our texts and other texts today are showing us is that there is also something that we do where we just are so myopic in our perspective of where we are and what we don't have, that we can foster and fuel in ourselves an ongoing, endless sort of grumble uh, to God. The bigger lesson from this is that sometimes, maybe even oftentimes, our complaints are spoken out of this very narrow, immediate moment and not the larger context or the larger story that you and I find ourselves in. Now Moses, interestingly, if we went back and looked at the text, I mean, the thing that Moses says again and again, probably the thing that gets the most airtime in Exodus 16, is Moses clarifying for the people, you think you're complaining against me, you're not. Who are we? He says it a number of times. Who am I? You are complaining against God. Your real complaint, Moses says, is not against Aaron and and me. It is against the one who has brought you out. You're complaining against the one who first heard your complaint at the beginning of the book of Exodus. Do you remember at the beginning when when the Lord appears to Moses out of a fiery bush and he says, what? I have heard the cries of my people. I've heard their complaint and I'm sending you out to go get them. And then these same people, they're complaining when the plagues are happening, and God continues to show mercy, and he delivers them out, and then they complain at the Red Sea, you brought us out here to be slaughtered. And he's like, I'm going to part the way, and they go through the Red Sea, and then they come out the other side, and he's like, you brought us out here to die of thirst. And he's like, fine, I'll make the water sweet. They're complaining against the one who has continued to show again and again and again mercy, favor, blessing, besides their constant disregard for the provision that God has given them. The closest I can think about what this is like is I think about my kids. I have four kids, um, and the two youngest are boys. And my boys are just in a hard age, you know? And if you have older kids, you know what I mean. You know, it's like there are are sweet seasons, and there are hard seasons, and we're in a hard season with the boys. They have very strong feelings about everything, and they feel very eager to share them. And so it's a pretty normal thing for me to be... um, (laughs) <laughs> it's almost like, it's like, you know, being kicked when you're down. So I'm like, you know, in the kitchen, and I, you know, I'm cleaning, I'm cooking dinner, I'm getting dinner ready because I do all the cooking in my family because I love it um, most of the time. So I'm cooking in the kitchen and, you know, the, the, the clothes are folded and they're in a basket and we just played a game for 30 minutes that I told them we'd play, you know, before we all headed out at 6.30 that morning. And I've been working all day long, you know, full day, and I got to be at the airport at five the next morning. And they're in there and they're, they're letting me know that, that it's unacceptable, that we've run out of goldfish crackers that day. <laughs> or some equally trivial thing, okay? And, and I think, I think, is that what I'm like? Is that what I, it's like, is that what I sound like, God? And I, you know, I think it is. I think that that's a lot of what my life is like. Like surrounded on all sides by the evidence of how good and kind God is, how generous he is. And yet, and yet finding it way easier to access in me this, this grumble of what I don't have What isn't in my fridge instead of what is in my fridge. What isn't active in my marriage instead of what is active in my marriage. What isn't active uh, in, in my home instead of what is. What isn't in my bank account instead of what is. Moses wants you and me to know, and Jesus in the parable of the workers wants us to know, that what we're complaining against in those moments is we're complaining against the God who is generous. We're complaining against the one who has shown benevolent mercy again and again um, and again. Which raises some questions for me, and I'm going to ask now because it makes sense, but we'll come back to uh, one or two of them later on for our reflection. What are the ways in which I am grumbling against God currently, all the while being literally surrounded by the evidence of his provision? And how have I let my longing for more and better drown out my thankfulness for a full fridge and clothes in the closet and good neighbors and healthy kids and the sound of laughter in my home? Who are the people I'm complaining against, but I'm actually really complaining against God? And then lastly, what, what am I missing out on? because of a complaining spirit? What might be available right in front of me? What might be just there, if I could just develop the eyes to see it? So Paul Miller um, is an author, speaker, he's older, older now. Um, he wrote a, a number of books, probably his most famous book is a book called Love Walked Among Us, but none of them are really that famous. But his best book, for, in, me, in me, in my opinion, is called A Praying Life. Uh, it's like in my top 10 books, Christian books full time. Um, and he says in his book pretty early on, he says the thing that we have to war against in developing a prayerfulness, a prayerful posture, is what he calls the spirit of our age, the dominant spirit of our age, which is cynicism. Cynicism, he says, questions the active goodness of God on our behalf. He reminds us that it was the first temptation in the Bible, actually. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, What's the very first thing that we're tempted to deal with? Did God really say? Can you really trust that he's telling you the truth here? You're not going to die if you eat the fruit. He knows that. Now, if you can't trust him about that, what else might he be keeping you from, I wonder? It's the very first thing that happens in our Bible. Can you really trust this God? And cynicism continues to be the thing that many of us, probably most of us, in one way or another... Wrestle with, And the reason is, I think, because cynicism feels grown up. Cynicism feels like a rival at the truth. It feels like a peek behind the curtain. It feels like we're finally thinking like adults. And in this way, cynicism robs us of joy. It crushes and scatters our hope that we actually live under the good and constant care of a loving, generous Father. As many of you know, not all of you, but a a number of you are aware, because I think I've shared parts of this in other sermons, uh, for for a, uh, a little over a year, almost a year and a half, from August of 2021 to December of 2022, I had a kid who was in the hospital. And it's actually one of the main reasons why I had to step away from uh, full-time vocational ministry, was just to, to tend to my family, and it's why I'm now jet-setting across America. But anyway, um, 16 months or so in a, in a hospital. About nine months of that, my wife was bedside, basically, wherever, wherever the, the kid was, whether that was in, in Massachusetts or in Augusta or, I mean, kind of all over. And then I was home with the, with the other three, and early on, I had a lot of energy around my prayers. I, I had a lot of, uh, uh, it was easy for me to access faith, and I would go into my kid's room, who was in the hospital, and I would, I would sit on their bed, and I would cry, and I would pray, and I would remind God of what kind of a God he is, and I would do all the things that we see modeled for us, and I'd say, you've done bigger things than this in my life, and I know you can break through here, I know you can intervene here, this doesn't have to drag on, This, and, and there'd be like little moments where things started to get better, and you know, my heart would swell, but then things would get worse, and we'd sort of dip deeper down into hopelessness. And over time, I went from contending and fighting uh, and hoping to just surviving. And what felt like faith at one point just grew really cold, and what felt way easier to access was cynicism, that this was gonna be the rest of our life, that things were never gonna get better, that maybe they were just gonna get worse and worse and worse until the end. And then in December, like out of the blue, almost like a punch in the gut, a a new kind of treatment started working and they were able to send my kid home and they were home by Christmas and they've continued to get better and better and better. And which is an amazing, it's a miracle, it's incredible. Thanks be to God. And um, so here's the question though, this is the thing I've been wrestling with for months now. Did God answer my prayers? And that's a real question I'm actually asking. I'm not asking you to answer it necessarily, but did God answer those prayers that I prayed in my kid's bedroom? Because the, the, the cynical part of me, which is the easier part to access right now, is like, I don't know, what happened. What would have happened anyway? Because it didn't happen in the timing that I thought it would happen. It didn't happen in the way that I thought it would happen. It just happened. Okay, why do I say all that? Um, I believe that we have an, op- an option about how we view the world we live in. I believe that we have the option to view it with a cynical lens that views everything as sort of predetermined nothing really changes what's going to happen is going to happen sometimes you get good breaks sometimes you get bad there's really no rhyme or reason just look at the story around us there are people who are suffering for no reason no one can understand why and there's people who are well off and succeeding and flourishing and they certainly don't deserve to be and if that's the world that we live in then maybe there is just no meaning to any of it it's easy to be cynical It doesn't take a whole lot of work. And the more you feed it, the the harder and the colder you grow. But there is another way to view the world we live in. And, And what if instead of being like, I don't know if God answered my prayers or if it just happened. I don't even know what prayer is anymore. I don't even know what you're doing. What if instead I decided to see that I live under the good and constant care and intervention of a loving father? that everything happens in his time for good reasons, that he has never taken his eyes off of me and he's never not heard a thing I've said, and that everything, everything in my life in some way is an opportunity to see God's immediate, ongoing, endless provision. I think that all of us have that opportunity in front of us. And it doesn't mean whitewashing the hard things in your life. And it also doesn't mean just pretending that something isn't actually hard. That's not at all the case. But there is still, at the same time, an opportunity to go, where am I again? Oh, that's right. I'm on the other side of the Red Sea. I was a slave. And now I'm free. Where was I again? And just looking back and seeing the way that God has brought me to this place right now. And rather than focusing on the things that aren't in my life, to choose to be grateful for the things that are, and maybe it would help me in the moments where I'm feeling that gap between what I wish were true and what is true, to instead of covering it with doubt and cynicism, to cover it with hope and faith. And I think that this is what this text and other texts are trying to show us, that we have a different way of viewing the world available to us. Paul writes in Philippians 2. So we read from Philippians 1 earlier. Philippians 2, he says this. He says, do all things without complaining. You're like, Paul, you stink. Do all things without complaining and arguing so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And I love this so much. Do all things without complaining. Why? So that in the midst of a crooked generation, you might, he says, shine like stars in the world. Do you realize how cool that is? That that there's like a whole, like the spirit of cynicism is just out there. That's the water we're swimming in. You don't have to, you're like, you're already wet with it. But what are we invited to be in the midst of that? To shine like stars. So we've come all this way, and I've hardly scratched the main point of the story. And don't worry, I'm not going to go 20 more minutes, I promise. What does God do? What does he do anyway? Even though they're complaining, even though they're grumbling, what does he do anyway? He gives them bread. He gives them bread from heaven. He feeds them. He feeds them every day for 40 years. In fact, they're going to eat this bread, this manna, which means what is it? They're going to eat it every day until, we'll read about this in Joshua, until the day they cross the Jordan River to finally inherit the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not even the people who are active when they it's their kids. They're all going to die in the wilderness because of their doubt. But God is going to feed them faithfully every day. And this dynamic of God taking care of our most basic needs is so active in what it means to be a child of God that it was obvious and natural for Jesus of Nazareth 1,500 years later to bake this into the central prayer that has led the church now for 2,000 years. Give us this day our daily bread. The principle of daily bread means that you and I can trust that we have what we need right now. And it pivots us away from the disappointment with what we don't have and helps us to see that what we have is sufficient. The Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann uh, wrote an article years ago that if you've ever heard me preach, you've probably heard me quote because I love it so much. It's called The, the Myth of Scarcity and the Liturgy of Abundance. And in it, he argues that the central teaching of the Bible is to, be, to, to love your neighbor. And, and that essentially tells us everything we need to know about what it means to be a human being. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. It's, it's everything that it means to be a, a human being. And he says, and I love this so much, he says, neighbor, the word neighbor is a check on acquisitiveness, not inquisitiveness, acquisitiveness, as though like, well, the way Jesus says, like, as though the whole point of life is to continue to acquire more and more and more. He says the word neighbor is a check on acquisitive, acquisitiveness because we understand that we do, in fact, belong to one another. He writes, we are now the richest nation and today's main covetors. We never feel we have enough. We have to have more and more, and the insatiable desire destroys us. Whether liberal or conservative Christians, we must understand the central problem of our lives. (laughs) It might feel exaggerating, but I don't know. It's probably true. The central problem of our lives is that we are torn apart by the conflict between our attraction to the good news of God's abundance and the power of our belief in scarcity, a belief that makes us greedy and mean and unneighborly. The conflict between the narrative of abundance and of scarcity is the defining problem confronting us at the turn of the millennium. The gospel story of abundance asserts that we originated, oh I love this, in the magnificent inexplicable love of God who worked the world into generous beings. that's that's the world you and I, that we are a part of a story that was originated by the inexplicable, magnificent love of God who loved the world into generous being. And so how do we fight against the myth of scarcity, the, 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 the spirit of cynicism, how do we do it? Brueggemann says we adopt what he calls a liturgy of abundance. A liturgy of abundance views the things I have as being sufficient. And not only for myself, but for others. Again, Paul Miller from his book says, nothing undercuts cynicism more than a spirit of thankfulness. You begin to realize your whole life is a gift. And thankfulness isn't a matter of forcing myself to see the happy side of life. That's naive optimism. And naive optimism is what leads to cynicism. But thanking God, Miller writes, restores the natural order of our dependence on God and it enables us to see life as it really is. You and I live in a world of manna, I know that that lands harder on some people's hearts in here right now. But it is true nonetheless. You and I live in a world of manna. And while we do not collect our bread from the grass each morning, we are surrounded on all sides by the evidence that what we have, what God has given us, is enough. And when we see our lives as fed by daily bread... We are less anxious about what we don't have. I mean, it takes training, but we become less anxious about what we don't have. And as a result, we're more generous with what we do have, because we know that what we have is a gift. And if everything is a gift, then I get to be a gift to others. It's all gift. It enables us to open our hands to our neighbors. It frees us to be radically generous to the church. This community that we're all a part of, it helps us to like say, this is my family, we're doing this good work in Chambly together. It allows us to be people who pour out from themselves into others because that's exactly what has happened to us. It releases us also from keeping a record of what others have given and done, like the workers in the parable. It frees us from being people who are keeping account of what people give and don't give. What you do with God's provision is not my responsibility. What I do with it is my responsibility. Adopting a liturgy of abundance takes some time. One of the things I started doing maybe five, six years ago, I still do it, is every time I'm putting away groceries, and when you're when you buy groceries for six people, let me tell you, friends, it's a lot of groceries. And it's a long time at the store. And if you're like me, you go to different stores to get the best prices on certain things. Thrifty. Um, Takes a long time. It's a long day, you know, or a long half day or whatever. Every time I open my fridge and I put away some clementines, I just try to say in my spirit, thank you. Thank you. Thank you that I get to put this away. Thank you that this is in there now. I think the fruit of this sort of life of adopting a liturgy of abundance, adopting a thankful, hopeful spirit, can be seen in the life of um, one of my heroes, Dallas Willard. And I just wanna read this in closing. While I was on leave from my church, I read a book called Becoming Dallas Willard by Gary Moon, a close friend of, of Dallas's. And Dallas died on May 8th, 10 years ago, at 6.30 in the morning. And at 4.30 in the morning, a nurse came in to turn Dallas in the bed. Her visit awakened Dallas's good friend, Gary, who was in the hospital with him, and moving Dallas also awakened him too. Gary took Dallas's hand, Dallas turned to him and told him to tell his loved ones how much he was blessed by them and how much he appreciated them. And then... As Gary described, in a voice clearer than I had heard in days, he leaned back his head slightly and with his eyes closed, he said, Thank you. Gary did not feel that Dallas was talking with him, but to another presence that Dallas seemed to sense was in the room, and those were the last words of Dallas Willard Thank you. He said in that moment to a very present and then finally visible God. I want my last words to be like that, you know? I want my life to have built and culminated so much so over the however many years I have that the overflow, the last thing that comes out of me is gratitude, not grumbling. To finally see my life as it really is, which is one that has been birthed by God's inexplicable love into generous being.